Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the resignation of Sir Ivan Rogers and the Whitehall Fury over Brexit. For our first episode of 2017, I'm delighted to be joined by Alex Barker, our Brussels Bureau Chief, Whitehall Editor James Blitz, and Brexit Editor Daniel Dombey. Thank you all for joining. So, the year has begun with a bit of a Brexit bang. Ever heard of Sir Ivan Rogers? Well, you probably hadn't before this week. He was the UK's permanent representative to the EU, the nation's foremost diplomat in Brussels. That was until he resigned on Tuesday. Now, Sir Ivan was due to step down later in 2017, but no one, least of all Downing Street, was expecting him to leave right before the Brexit talks began. In a coded resignation note, Sir Ivan suggested that his advice to the government was being ignored. There was muddled thinking about Brexit in Whitehall and that civil servants must not shy away from telling politicians the truth. Sir Alex Barker, you are the man who broke this story, a very big development in the Brexit tale. Was this ever expected? Did you ever think that Sir Ivan was going to hand in his notice before Article 50 was triggered? It was certainly a shock to me and a shock to a lot of the officials here. With hindsight, I think it was clearer that there were difficulties building between Sir Ivan and the kind of core team in Downing Street. And that really manifested itself in December, around the time of a European summit, where some of his old advice to the Prime Minister was leaked. It became quite a big deal because he was saying a trade deal could take into the mid-2020s to agree with the EU. In Brussels, that's kind of the orthodox view, but it became very personalised in the UK press. And I think that was the moment where a lot of other issues crystallised for him uh, and raised a question mark over whether he would be able to give the kind of direct, unvarnished advice uh, to the Prime Minister during this negotiation that he grew accustomed to with previous Prime Ministers. I certainly think from things that I've picked up this week that Downing Street had quite a sceptical view of Sir Ivan because he's blamed by a lot of people around David Cameron and in the Conservative Party for not pushing hard enough or not going for a tough enough reform. So I think on that level, the relationship didn't really begin on a good basis. Do you think that's fair? I think it's certainly fair to say that there are people in the old Cameron team and around the Prime Minister who have issues with Sir Ivan. I think it's a bit more of a complicated story in terms of his relationship with the Prime Minister in particular and his role in that negotiation. He did have a reasonably good relationship with Theresa May. Remember, he was one of the few people that she, before becoming Prime Minister, had worked closely with on a complex European issue. They were working very closely closely together when Britain was working through these opt-outs on home 
home affairs when she was home secretary. They had a good relationship. They used to have gin and tonics in her hotel room together on various councils, and uh, she was taking his advice. I don't know whether it was heeded in full, certainly not, but she was in contact with him. There were calls to him, and he was as engaged with the Prime Minister as almost as much as he would have been with David Cameron. So it's a bit more complicated uh, in terms of how that relationship with the core Downing Street team soured. Equally, for the renegotiation, he was clearly very, very closely working with David Cameron through that period, and Tom Scholar, who was the kind of Prime Minister's principal European negotiator at that time. Uh, And there is some regrets expressed, as you said, by a lot of the former Cameron advisers about whether they aimed high enough, whether it was the civil servants warning of the kind of problems they would face in Brussels that trimmed Cameron's ambitions over time and left him in a place where he had a deal that was unsellable. And that's the case, but I think Sir Iwan would say to you that it was the politics that actually trimmed a lot of the ambitions and that he was only making clear what was possible, that treaty change wasn't feasible in that period, and that the type of free movement reforms that were raised were not sellable. And it wasn't Sir Ivan saying that, it was Angela Merkel. You know, when she said, no, no way, never, David, that's, that's a pretty clear message from her. Well, if it's gone down as a shock in Brussels, James Blith, it's certainly been a bit of a shock back home as well that Theresa May had wanted to start 2017 with a domestic policy blitz. She wanted to go through lots of different areas and set out her stand on education, on housing, on social mobility, and of course, a big speech on Brexit. That's all been blown out of the water by Sir Ivan's resignation that has taken up the news cycle about why he's gone, whose fault it was, his replacement and all the rest of it. But the thing that struck me the most, I'm going to come on to this a bit later about the government's preparedness, is this idea of muddled thinking within the government. And that seems to have been some kind of disagreement with David Davis, who's the Brexit secretary, and Liam Fox, who's the international trade secretary. Do you think they were happy to see the back of Sir Ivan? I think they probably were. On your first point, I certainly think it's been a very bad start to the year for Theresa May. This isn't what she wanted, of course. It took her completely by surprise. I think the good news from the government's point of view, I think there are two bits of good news, I suppose. One of them is that they did act pretty quickly, unusually quickly for Mrs May, who is by nature, by instinct, rather a cautious, slow-moving politician, they did act very quickly to replace him with Sir Tim Barrow. And that has settled things. And I think that probably does give Mrs May a bit more of the space she needs to move on to other agendas if she wants to when Parliament comes back next week. So that's one bit of good news. And I think then on your second point, were they pleased to see the back of him? Yes, I think he probably was somebody who wasn't viewed particularly positively in Whitehall by people in the David Davis, Liam Fox camp. Of course not. But I think it does raise a wider question, which is whether, as the UK goes into the negotiation later this year, it has all the expertise well assembled that it needs to push ahead. At the end of the day, they have lost, I think, objectively speaking, they have lost somebody who certainly knew the European scene very, very well indeed. They've lost somebody with a treasury background, which is very important, because this isn't like issues of politics or hard security. This is actually quite a complex economics trade 
need issue this negotiation. You do need someone with that kind of background. It's yet to be clear whether Sir Tim Barrow quite meets that. He's a, certainly a very, very able diplomat, but there are some questions from some people over whether he's the right fit for that. And the government is losing quite a few other people, like Sir Martin Donnelly, the permanent secretary at the Department of International Trade, who, again, is somebody who really knows the European ropes inside out. So, all told, there are positives, perhaps, for those of the hard Brexiteers in the government, but there are wider questions for people who really want to make sure that this thing is going to work. And Alex, what's been the perception of the appointment of Sir Tim Barrow in Brussels? You know, there was some talk of a political appointment, which is not unheard of, but is very rare, and particularly Brexiters from the hard right, the Conservative Party, saying we need someone who is fully throated behind Brexit to go in there and bat for it. And Theresa May, as James said, moved quite quickly to cut that off and go for another experienced diplomat, which has been welcomed by pretty much everyone but UKIP's Nigel Farage, who's saying career politicians, etc., etc., even Brexit seemed to welcome him. Has he got that right mix to do his job in UK rep both now and through Article 50? Well, he's, a, he's really a, a kind of consummate diplomat. He's taken on the role of political director, which kind of straddles all policy in the Foreign Office after leaving Moscow uh, as ambassador, and really filled that job very well, from what I understand. And he has been very popular. He's a decent person, according to his colleagues. He has an ability to work in very different circumstances and to build relationships with politicians from different stripes and that will aid him tremendously in this job. He also knows Brussels pretty well. I mean, he was here two stints. The people in Akrep were delighted to see him appointed. But as James was saying earlier, he has some of the shortcomings that the broader Whitehall machine does on this question, which is that his experience in foreign policy in particular is going to be hugely useful in Brussels as they deal with Trump and Russia and everything else. But the bread and butter of this negotiation are technical, trade, economic, legal questions budget questions, which is quite a steep learning curve. And his interlocutors in this town know it inside out, and he will be starting relatively afresh, and that's an issue. And just to jump back to some of the things that James was picking up and and you were saying, Seb, the role of the perm rep in Brussels, what's their purpose? And I guess one of them is to be irritating to the London bubble, because here your job is feeding back to a degree not just what Europe thinks, but what actually is feasible and possible and it's a bubble over here but it's an important one and uh, we're going to be making some of the most significant decisions in the UK over the next few weeks for something like a generation in terms of the negotiating strategy and goals and it's pretty important to make sure that you're doing that with a good grounding and understanding of what's actually feasible in this negotiation. This is a good question that's been raised, James, which is who is going to be doing the negotiations on this sort of civil service level? Because on one hand, you've got, as I said, Sir Tim Bauer, who's going to be over in Brussels. You've then got Ollie Robbins, who is the permanent secretary at DEGSU, the department for leaving the EU. And as your excellent scoop pointed out this week, he tried to make a land grab and have the UK rep position degraded so he would actually be in charge of it. Then, of course, we have the all-seeing, all-knowing Sir Jeremy Hayward, who is the cabinet secretary sitting in number 10 who I'm sure would love to have a great say in this. There is a big question that in politicians wise we know it's going to be Theresa May and David Davis who are leading this with ultimately Theresa May making the big cause but on the civil service level who is leading it? Who is going to be the main man? I don't think there's any question that Ollie Robbins he looks to me like somebody who's in a very very powerful position because he 
has two roles. One of them is that he's the permanent secretary at the Department for Exiting the EU. So he is the official responsible for coordinating the negotiating position across all the Whitehall departments that are affected, building up all this information that is being fed up to David Davis and to the Prime Minister over what different parts of Whitehall want to happen. So that's a very important role. And on top of that, he is also the Prime Minister's Sherpa to the European Council, which means that he is effectively the lead negotiator for that negotiation. So that's a very, very powerful double-hatted role. The issue is, as I think, as, as Alex was pointing out, is that the UK representative in Brussels also has a very important role indeed. And as Alex puts it, it's very often to be challenging the London view, bringing in all the information and views that there are across Europe over what to happen and adding some realism. And normally in European negotiations, the Sherpa, i.e. the person who's Ollie Robbins, and the person who is the UK rep, now to be Sir Tim Barrow, tend to be side by side alongside the Prime Minister. But ultimately... It is the Sherpa who is the more important person because the Sherpa is the person in day-to-day -day contact with the PM who's in the Whitehall machine, in Downing Street all the time. And so, therefore, he is still in a strong position. I think what he wanted to do, however, what it seems to me he wanted to do, was try and streamline things more and downgrade the role of the UK rep to the Director General role so that he had established his authority more because there clearly was a very scratchy relationship between himself and Ivan Rogers. And just finally, Alex, outside of the UK bubble, what's Brussels' perspective on all this? Because if you look at all the carnival that's happened so far, it's been pretty chaotic with the infighting inside the Conservative Party, the lack of information from Downing Street, civil servants resigning. It's a bit mad watching it from here, but I'm sure from Brussels they're probably looking at this incredulously thinking, what on earth is happening to the UK and how is this thing going to work? Yes, is the, is the answer to that. A lot of them knew uh, thriving pretty well. They would see this as a bad sign in terms of how smoothly this negotiation may go. It's pretty unusual for them to be in a situation where they're more unified, aligned, organised and prepared in many ways than, than the UK, uh, you know, 27 countries versus one. And there's a degree of consensus, which I haven't seen in a long time. And um, that's partly because it's not been tested yet. But they're sitting there reasonably content about the kind of preparations they've made and in complete kind of bewilderment at what is going on in London at the moment. And you've got to aim off a bit, of course, but the kind of derision I hear about the cake and eat it strategy, the kind of willingness they have and confidence they have in their hand in the negotiations and actually the surprise there is here that Theresa May actually set a date for invoking Article 50 is extraordinary. I mean, they were pretty shocked that she did that in the end because if and when Britain does invoke Article 50, they see all of the playing cards in their hand and uh, that they will be running this negotiation, essentially. One of the consequences of Sir Ivan's departure has been questions raised about just how ready both Whitehall and the government is for triggering Article 50 in March 2017. Now, Theresa May has around 80 days left to meet her self-imposed deadline, yet there is still so much we don't know. In his resignation note, Sir Ivan said that the government still has not told him his clear negotiating objectives. Now, that either means that the Prime Minister has yet to decide what Brexit looks like or that her definition of negotiating objectives does not chime with Sir Ivan's. 
Now, if that's true and given her experience in the EU, the gulf between the government's view and that of the EU could be irreconcilable. So, Dan Dombey, you oversee the FT's Brexit coverage. You're all across all the announcements and the strategies of what Brexit's going to look like. Now, in some senses, we do know the broad contours about what she said in her conference speech. The idea that we are not going to remain under ECJ jurisdiction And we're going to control migration. So from that, we can deduce we're probably going to leave the single market. There are still questions about the customs union. And I think the Prime Minister does want to have some kind of grey relationship, which is we're not in or we're not out. We're somewhere in between. She does want to control migration. So if you take all that together, does that count as negotiating objectives? I don't think this does count as negotiating objectives. I think we have a very strong clue, a very strong idea of where the direction of travel has been. But let's be clear, just to return to a point that others have made, this is the most consequential negotiation that Britain has entered into since it joined the EU, and quite possibly for the whole post-war period. It will govern every aspect of British life. It determines Britain's relationship with the rest of the world, not just the EU, but the 50 to 60 countries that the EU had trading deals with, and indeed Britain's economic model itself and the functioning of British society. So to get a general sense of a direction of travel that we're not be the member of a single market, that they want to fudge whether we're going to be in the customs union or not with possible exemptions or favourable treatment for things like the car industry and Nissan in particular, that's nowhere near the comprehensive, across-the-waterfront, opening negotiating position you'll need if you have a realistic hope, I think, of trying to carry out the probably 14 to 16 months of negotiation successfully and have taken all the preparations you want. So there's much more. There's a little that we know. There's much more that the government needs to know to prepare for these negotiations in a way that it's really ready to take advantage of all the time. I should add just one other thing. It comes and goes. There are waves. We had a lot of very Eurosceptical language in that conference speech in early in October, with those two points that you said. Since then, we've had a series of other suggestions. Transition deals. Transition deal, paying into the EU budget, customs union, workarounds for things like Nissan. A real sense that they want to avoid falling off the cliff edge, as Theresa May said. But there is one important caveat. I think there's a suspicion out there that we're still really in fantasy football land. What the British cabinet and Mrs May are saying on those rare occasions they give us a sign of what they're thinking is about their ideal Brexit outcome. Britain's ideal outcome and any kind of likely deal that you would strike with the 27 and the European Parliament are very different things. An opening bid and a maximalist position are very unlikely to be where you end up. And I think there's not necessarily been that much reflection at the moment about what the necessary trade-offs are likely to be if we're to get our most important priorities rather than our perfect outcome. One of the suspicions, James, out of those two things I said before, whether either she has not decided or her definition of objectives is not the same as Sir Ivan's people in the EU, there has been a lot of thought, I think, in Westminster that the Prime Minister hasn't made those big decisions that Dan talked about there, this idea that you're going to have to have trade-offs. And there was an idea that she was going to go away over Christmas, lock herself in a dark room with a wet towel and then say, OK, we're going to do this, this is going to be our position. Do you think that that is the case the Prime Minister has yet to decide or that they are hoping to go into the Article 50 process and play it by ear? Well, 
the first thing to say is the Prime Minister has said next to nothing since the Christmas break. So if there has been some kind of decision-making, it certainly hasn't come out yet. She was meant to make a big speech, which I believe is yeah, coming. It's, it's coming, which, but we haven't heard it yet. Which so, has possibly been delayed by So obviously by there's, there's been a gap of about two or three weeks in which things have been closed. Uh, certainly in the run-up to Christmas, I think I, like most people, was quite confident that the big discussions in Cabinet or in the d- dedicated Cabinet Brexit Committee or within her own coterie, that the big decision discussions have not happened. They have not taken decisions on key issues. The most important is customs union, where there are clearly different views around the table. Completely leave, completely stay, or have some kind of cherry-picking carve-out involving certain sectors. That firm decision has not happened, and David Davis has indicated in the past that there will be a decision before Article 50 notification. So that hasn't happened. We haven't had any clear decision on the nature of the migration controls. David Davis said rather cryptically that the British would not say anything about that before the negotiation or indeed during the negotiation, I think, in his last evidence. But there's clearly a lot of definition there that you can do. What is it you are trying to do? Are you going to keep out high-skilled workers, low-skilled workers? Are you going to have a point system? Are you going to have a work permit system? This is the kind of critical detail that hasn't come out. So... As far as I'm aware, there is no decision on that either. And then there is no real decision on how extensive we want our privileged access to the single market to be. How far would we go in restricting that in order to get what we want on migration? Now, I'm sympathetic to an argument that the Prime Minister has made all along, which is you don't want to show your negotiating hand. And I think that's understandable, because if the government sets out in a document what it wants, it needs to be sure it can come close to delivering that in the end. And the big mistake David Cameron made was that he did set up expectations of something that was high, which he wasn't able to deliver. And she doesn't. And I understand that, doesn't want to go down that road again. That said... I just don't think you can go through the next two years with what we've had up till now, which is the odd aside here, the odd aside there from one minister after another. You need a document which is where things can rest for the medium term until you come back with something. And and that's what is needed. Now, Daniel, let's just stand back from the process for a minute and actually look at Mrs May's domestic position here. Because if we look at it in the European context, what Alex was saying earlier, you know, it's all looking a bit uncertain and just incredulous at how things are going. But domestically, Theresa May is actually in a good position that her poll ratings are as high as they've ever been. Her personality ratings are high. Now, a lot of that is to due to... To the opposition party, which is still really nowhere. They've become an irrelevance in day-to-day politics. Jeremy Corbyn has nothing useful to say on the economy or on Brexit. So nobody's really in challenger. Plus, consumer spending has been doing pretty well. And we've seen a bunch of data come out this week that again shows that the UK economy is surprisingly resilient. It's more resilient than forecasters thought it was going to be. So this disconnect is very interesting. And I noticed this over the Christmas break being outside of London. that a lot of this chat that we have about Article 15 about the single market, which is all very important. People don't care. People don't recognise they see as a Prime Minister who is about to go into bat. And I think that marches her final deadline she has for that before the public will begin to say, well, hang on, why aren't you getting on with this? She's going into bat. And the perception of that here and the perception of what she's doing elsewhere is very different. I think it's very key not to miss that. Yes, I entirely agree. There is uh, clearly a massive disjuncture between the conversations that are being had in London and Brussels, in Whitehall and in media offices like our own, and what's happening 
around the country. You see a Prime Minister who has an approval rating well in the 40s, leader of the opposition, only 14% of whom of the electorate think would make a better Prime Minister. You have the That's deputy... less than don't knows, it's worth noting. Yeah. And well below Labour's own abysmal rating in the polls. You've not seen such a one-sided party political position in my lifetime, I think probably in my parents' lifetime as well. I think that's worth reflecting. It is almost inconceivable to see how Labour would come back and win an election in the next decade. Even though Mrs May has a wafer-thin Commons majority, something which we will be reminded of at the multiple stages of this Article 50 process, the Tory party's position is without peer in recent British politics. And... It's certainly true that they, we had a kind of mere culpa this week from Andy Haldane, the Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, who admitted to a kind of Michael Fish moment in terms of the bank and the economics profession more generally getting wrong the immediate response of the economy to the vote. Not to Brexit itself, but to the vote. They just didn't get the animal spirits of the consumers right, and we're seeing that buoyancy, that optimism in British consumers right now. That said, despite this enormous disjunction, which is enormously important for, I think, Theresa May drawing sources of strength and continuing to think that she's doing the right thing, that said, on the investment side, there's a lot of evidence that shows that companies are sitting on their hands when it comes to making big investment decisions, making sure they're not borrowing too much, being careful, being precautionary, because it's very hard to plan for the future when we don't know what Brexit looks like. And I'm afraid when there is a disjuncture about the fundamental direction, the way the country's headed and the risks of that path, at some stage it will be resolved. Someone will be right or other. Whether it is the chattering elite that was so clearly out of touch in 2016 that turns out to be wrong, or people's confidence that actually the old order was worth getting rid of, one of those two points of view will be turned out to be more wrong than right. Confidence is going to be very interesting to look at this year, Dan, because wages, if they begin to halt, if inflation continues to creep up, that could have real effects on consumer confidence, which is what is being used to say the economy is fairly buoyant right now. Yeah, look, after the experience of 2016, I think people look at scenarios rather than forecasts. There is a central scenario for 2017 in which things get rather more difficult. You see inflation creeping up in the mid-year as hedges by retailers and so on expire and therefore the exchange rate effect really pushes prices up. You see towards the end of the year really quite considerable increases in heating bills, for example, because we get our gas almost exclusively from outside the country. And possibly in 2018, you start seeing a minimal increase in interest rates to deal with that inflation. And also you may get impact on investment and, as you said, consumer confidence. That's a scenario in which there's a moderate amount of pain over the medium term but really something that only starts kicking in the back end of Brexit negotiations. That's the central scenario. There are two other scenarios, though. One is everything goes great. The consumer confidence continues to barrel in front of it. The pound even recovers and Brexit boom continues. There is another scenario, which is, you know what? As soon as Article 50 begins, there's a whole series of events at which things don't go to plan. There are, by definition, impasses and crises because that's what negotiations involve and that alerts people to the perilous nature of a negotiation and that creates shocks which actually hit the economy. We have to look at all of those scenarios because that's what planning involves. There's a real risk that Brexit does shake up the economy but there's also a possibility that that consumer confidence just keeps on barreling along. 
And finally, James, just going back to Mrs May's domestic political position here, what's actually quite interesting is if these negotiations begin and don't go well and this disconnect that we've talked about between the government's position and Brussels' position and they all fall apart or they stall or what have you, that will actually toughen up the government's position. You could see the public saying, well, actually, hang on a minute, we need to go for a harder, cleaner break. You know, there's still no evidence in the country that people have any regrets around Brexit at all. And I was quite struck on an episode of BBC's Question Time that it was thrown out to the audience, how long do you think Brexit is going to take? And the average answer was about three months. You know, again, this is obviously the issue of complex geopolitical questions pushed down into a much smaller thing. But I can't see anything that's going to soften the Prime Minister's political position, regardless of how these talks go. I very much agree with what you're saying. And I think in here, in the London bubble, and let's be honest, that's to some degree where we are, that's one of the hardest things for people to understand. I was very struck by a comment, you mentioned something on Question Time, I was very struck by a comment by the academic Matthew Goodwin on Newsnight on Tuesday night over the question, how would the public respond if the economic data does go bad? We As have Dan said, As Dan the worst said, case scenario. The worst case scenario. And what he was saying was actually, well, there's one of two things. People might say, OK will turn against Brexit. But it's also more likely that they'll actually turn against Europe. The feeling about Brexit is so strong. The sense that some kind of line has been drawn in the sand with the referendum vote is very strong indeed. And as you say, if the negotiations go badly, then it may well be that the argument to toughen things up will get even stronger. Final point on Mrs May. I think you can criticise her an awful lot. She's got a very hefty criticism from The Economist cover this week. Theresa may be indecisive, doesn't really know what she wants and so on. The one card she has is I think she understands the country. She's shown she understands where the country is better than a lot of politicians because she has... Better than David Cameron. Better than David Cameron because she recognised very early on Brexit had to happen. It's what, admittedly, a slim majority, but a majority passionately wanted. And in that sense, her position quite apart from the Labour Party's weakness and muddled nature, because they are really the muddled ones. That's where the muddled thinking really, really is, actually, in British politics. She's understood that better, and I don't think we can completely shove that point to one side. Well, I have the feeling that this week's event certainly won't be the last surprise of this year. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back for another instalment of FT Politics next week, and I imagine there'll be plenty more Brexit in there. Thank you for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.